Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Actually, the end of chapter 14. We had a few verses left from last week. We've just seen God's valiant victory through the faith of Jonathan. We've seen... uh, Two men faced the Philistine army with confidence in their God and be the beginning of the victory where the Philistine army begins to fight against each other. And now we get to the point where there's a big hinge in the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to begin to transfer out of Saul as king and David is king, as we're going to see the kingdom ripped uh, from Saul today. And in verse 47 of, of chapter 14, we get the beginning, in a sense, of, of the end of Saul as we get to the sum up of his, his reign as king. It says, when Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zeboah, against the Philistines. Whoever he turned, he routed them. Or wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The names of the firstborn were Mirab, and the name of the younger was Michael. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, and the daughter of Ahizmaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul. Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. When Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. And then we get to chapter 15. And as I read this, I'm just going to make comments uh, throughout and, and add some Scripture to give some historical context. And we begin uh, to see this uh, f- final event with Samuel and Saul uh, that teaches us many things both about the character of God, the character of man, and, and really causes us to look forward to Christ. So in verse 1 it says, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over His people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. And just the word listen you should highlight here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt, 
Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so he tells Saul here to devote to utter destruction Amalek because of what they did to them as they passed through the Red Sea and moved out into the desert. They were attacked when they were weak. And in Exodus 17, this is what we're told. After they attacked them and Israel fought them off, in Exodus 17, uh, verses 14 through 16, here's what the Lord said to Moses. Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, The hand upon the throne of the Lord the Lord will say, or will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And then later in Deuteronomy, just so the people didn't forget what the Amalekites did to Israel, in Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19, Moses says this, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you, he did not fear the Lord. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you and the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So this message that the Lord gives through Samuel to Saul to blot out these people, even their babies, even their livestock, all stems from what happened 300 years earlier when they attacked God's people. And then in verse 4, he continues on. Or it continues on. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telium 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay it. In wait, uh, or lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Canaanites, Go depart, go from among the Amicalites, lest I destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Canaanites departed from among the Amicalites. So, if you remember, Moses married Jethro's daughter and and Jethro's daughter was a Canaanite and so they showed favor to Israel back in the past and so Saul gives them time to get out before 
He brings destruction. And then in verse 7 we read, And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted destruction to all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag. If you go back to verse 3, they were told not to spare anyone. And they also spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The animals that seemed worthless, they destroyed. The ones that seemed to have value, they kept. To keep Agag alive would be like a trophy for Saul to show off. And then in verse 10, the Word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. So just imagine, this is not a good night's rest for Samuel. And then we read in verse 12, and Samuel rose in the morning to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. Behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel didn't get very good sleep last night. He gets this nice chipper greeting. Oh, blessed be you to the Lord. I kept the commandments of the Lord. Things are good. Just set up a monument for myself for that great victory. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears and the lowing of oxen I hear? Saul said, they've brought them from the Amicalites for the people spared the best of the sheep of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. The people spared them, but they spared them to sacrifice to the Lord is what Saul says. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. You're going to blame the people, he's saying? Are you not the king of Israel? Has not the Lord put you here? 
And in verse 18, he says, And the Lord has sent you on mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on mission on which the Lord had sent me. I brought up Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen and the best of the things and, and the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord in Gilgal. So he blames the people again. And I just want to point out here that and Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. And then he says, look at verse 21. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and of the oxen, and of the best things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord, what does he say? Your God. To the Lord your God, Samuel. It's a hint to what the problem with Saul is. And Samuel said in verse 22, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the Word of the Lord, He has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may be bow before the Lord. In a sense, he's saying, okay, I've sinned. Now return with me and let's get on with things. I admit, I listen to the people. Then Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for I have rejected, or for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel, meaning God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me 
that they may bow before the Lord your God. He's saying, okay, I've sinned. I know you're tearing the kingdom, but go with me. Don't embarrass me in front of the people. So Samuel, verse 31, turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring to me Agag, the king of the Amicalites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. He's thinking if they're going to kill me, they would have killed me already. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. Women, And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house in, in Gibeah of Saul. The Word of God through Samuel has now parted from Saul. Saul will now try to reign without God's Word. And then it says in verse 35, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would give us insight and wisdom to this text and to understand what You are like, and to understand what You love. Lord, if there's anyone here today who this all seems strange to, God, I pray that You might enlighten their eyes to the hope of Christ today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, often after I read through the text that I'm going to preach through, I'll write down questions that I have. Usually there's one question that I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to seek out what this means or what that means. After I read this text, I had six questions and they all seemed very difficult questions. Maybe they were coming to mind as we were going through this story. I'll, let me just tell you what mine were. Why is God so harsh against the Amicalites? Why so harsh? You know, I know you're not supposed to spank your child in anger. And if you're going to put a king to death, are you supposed to grab a sword and hack him to pieces? Are we really supposed to kill the babies of the Amicalites? Why the harshness? I mean, this is a tough God to sell, right? I mean, I'm watching the politicians during these debates and they're all pointing out each other's past failures and they all have a way of kind of schmoozing around them so that everyone, no one ever really admits they made mistakes. And for us as Christians, we get to verses like 
we see in this chapter and we start to think, how am I supposed to sell this God to my neighbor? Or to the United States of America. They'll laugh at this. They'll say, this God is wicked. Why is He so harsh? Second question, if God is sovereign, which means God is in control of everything and always does what's right, then how can He have regret? And then a few verses later say, God doesn't regret. Third question, why is Samuel so angry when he finds out about what Saul did? What's he angry about? Fourth question I had. Why is obedience more important to God than sacrifice? God tells us to make sacrifice. Why does He rate them and say obedience is better than sacrifice? Fifth question I had. Is Saul really repentant when he admits his sin? And the sixth question, I guess, goes with the first one. Why does Samuel, he's never killed a man in his life, at this point in his ministry, grab the sword and kill the king of Agag? So those were the questions. And then I prayed, Lord, help me. (laughs) That's a lot of them for one chapter. But all of them, although they're unsettling, I think are absolutely drive us to the most glorious point and points that we see in this text. So let's begin with point one in your notes where I'm charging you to love the unsettling God of vengeance who is the only one who can ensure your peace. Love the unsettling God. You cannot read this and honestly not be unsettled a little bit by what you read. If you can, I'm going to call you a liar. Whether it's the babies being killed, the king being hacked up into pieces, Saul getting no no more chances, so how can Psalm 145.9 be true and this text before us? Psalm 145.9 The Lord is good to all and His mercy is over all that He has made. The Lord is good to all. He's merciful to everybody. The psalmist tells us, well, how can this be true? You know, this is where the atheist Richard Dawkins says the worst character ever in fiction, because he calls the Bible fiction, has to be the God of the Old Testament. This horrible being. How could anyone ever believe in a God 
like this. Well, let's get the facts straight. First, they attacked Israel right as God has done many wonders. And those wonders spread to the surrounding communities. They knew that there was a God in Israel that brought the Israelites out of Egypt, the most powerful place in the world at the time. And they came and attacked them, the stragglers at the end of the pack. And God let them live for three hundred years. And so the facts are, He's slow to anger in this sense. You know, He's waited till now. And the thing to realize here is this is the Lord's battle. You see, the Lord was the one that was attacked when they attacked Israel. The reason why Saul needs to wipe them all out is because God's glory is at stake. God deserves the fullness of this punishment on these people. And it's interesting. You know, whenever we read a passage and we say, I don't know if I could believe in a God like that. That seems too harsh. The same problem that's causing you to ask that question is a problem everyone has. We have a low view of sin. Sin's not that big a deal. Every one of the Amicalites is a sinner. This text tells us that. Even the babies are born sinful from the line of Adam. And low view of sin, low view of God, and so we don't understand how could these things be. But also, we're foolish in thinking that there can be any good news without judgment. You see, the new heavens and new earth doesn't start until Jesus Christ comes and destroys all the wicked and throws Satan in the pit in hell in the lake of fire forever. And then He destroys all wicked man forever. Then peace comes. There's no such thing as good news apart from judgment on sin. That's why Isaiah can say, in Isaiah 35.4, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense, the recompense of God. He will come and save you. The reason why this text shouldn't bother you, but should comfort you, it's because you don't have a Savior unless you have a God that will protect His people by destroying their enemies. And God is showing you do not mess with My people. 
Remember what He said to Abraham? I will bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. You know the sign people put up, beware of dog? God puts up a sign that says, beware of sheep. You mess with my sheep, I mess with you. Now this changes in the New Covenant. When the war against sin in our lives is against our sin, not against other people. But there is no salvation apart from God protecting His people. Listen to, uh, listen to what one commentator says on this. Your God will come with a vengeance is to hear the word of good news and great joy. For this means that God will put down and overthrow all who strangle and oppress His people. If He does not do that, the ultimate what ultimate hope do we have? No vengeance on God's enemies means no deliverance for His people. The full Gospel, the good news in all its completeness, always proclaims both the year of the Lord's favor and the, ven- and the day of vengeance of our God. Isaiah 61.2 His people enjoy His favor. His enemies receive His vengeance. And if you remember Revelation 6, you have those who have been killed for the name of Christ. In verse 9, we read, When He opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who've been slain for the Word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before You'll judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? Now that doesn't make you feel any more light and fluffy. And I know that. And that's why I say this text reveals a God that is not light and fluffy, but is unsettling to read about both His judgment on sinners. It's unsettling to know what our sin must be like if it brings about that kind of judgment. So, Step one, do not deny the God your Bible gives you, but love Him. You cannot have salvation without the God of the Bible who both judges and saves. Even in your salvation, God judged Jesus Christ for your sins so that you and I could be saved. Those who reject Jesus Christ will take the judgment on themselves. Secondly, listen to and obey God's commands. Saul's excuse in verse 15 that he was going to use animals for burnt offerings was foolish because it assumed that breaking God's command was less important than the religious act of sacrifice. You see what Saul did? Saul said, well, we'll keep the animals alive 
and we'll offer them as sacrifice to the Lord because God likes sacrifice. And what Samuel's saying is, do you really think that God is more happy if you break His command and do that religious act? That you, especially doing it from a heart that doesn't want to follow the Lord. The Old Testament is everywhere in the Old Testament, this message uh, rings forth. Listen to Psalm 40. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear to listen to God's Word. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do Your will, O my God. Your law is in my heart. That's what God delights in. Psalm 51.16 For I do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken contrite heart. O God, You do not despise. Saul's Proud, I'm going to change the rules. Heart gets rejected. Proverbs 21.3 To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Proverbs 28.9 If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, doesn't listen anymore, even his prayer is an abomination. You go do whatever religious act you want to do. If you don't listen to God's Word and seek to follow it and be obedient to the Lord of the Word, you can go to church every Sunday. You can tithe 90% of your money and it's an abomination before God even if you pray all day long. God is not pleased with religious ceremony apart from a heart that wants to know His Word. We live in a culture that loves to leave God's Word, especially on the character of God. Most churches would be embarrassed of the God of this chapter in this Bible. But the one the Lord listens to, hears His prayer, the one the Lord is delighted in, is the one who wants the Word of God and wants to follow it in their life and is humble before it. Jeremiah said this to Israel, Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to My words. That's their problem. And as for My law, they have rejected it. What use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba or sweet cane that comes from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable and your sacrifices are not pleasing to me. Micah, similarly in Micah 6.6 says this, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? 
He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but do justice to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And this heartbeat enters right into the New Testament, 1 John 2. We read this, verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. And so in this text, we see Samuel rejecting not the sacrificial system wholesale, but by putting it above obedience. One commentator says, Samuel negates sacrifice not absolutely, but relatively. He is saying that formal worship cannot be substituted for an obedient life. External devotions for internal submission. The Burlesburg Bible that had a lot of study notes in it from 1726 says this, in the sacrifices a man offers only strange flesh. Now get this. So in a sacrifice of animals, a man offers only strange flesh of irrational animals. Whereas in obedience, he offers his own will, which is rational or spiritual worship. Killing an irrational animal isn't what ultimately brings God praise. That's why the bloods of the blood of goats can't cover a man's sin. That's why when you have a rational human being, a man, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who lived perfectly obediently before the Father, who only listened to His Word. When that man lays down his life as the sacrificial lamb for sins, God is satisfied and God is pleased. And Christian, what pleases Jesus Christ is not the spiritual things you do. You could go to six Bible studies a week. What pleases God is a soul that humbly trembles before His Word and says, Lord, help me be obedient to any point in here. You can do anything in my life to change me. I want to follow You. That's what brings honor and glory to Jesus Christ. Thirdly, let your repentance be before God and man. In verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Saul could say, I repented of that sin. Don't you remember? It's recorded in Scripture. I said what it was. I listened to man. I didn't listen to God. But this repentance, even though the words say it, rings hollow. Because he immediately is so unbroken 
that He just wants to quickly, let's just, okay, forgive me quick and put me right back in order after the Word of God has already spoken and said, you're done as king. He thought so lightly of Samuel's Word to him that God was going to change His mind on His decision to rip the kingship from Him. And then, his big concern is, well, not, don't let the people see that you've rejected me. They're going to freak out. Okay, come, I'm going to do this worship thing and you stand here next to me. So it's a hollow repentance that doesn't tremble before God's Word, that isn't willing to be humbled before people. A true repentance is okay with being humbled before your brothers and your sisters and your neighbors. To be humbled before God and to be humbled before man. You know, we like to do our repentance in a closet. Okay, God and I have this thing done. But here's the thing. If I get up here and try to pretend that I'm such a great person and none of you ever know my sins or never know my struggles, well, then you might think, well, what a great guy he is. Where in fact, the reality is, if I'm anything, it's only because of Christ. I am only here. Anything I say true is by the grace of God. And you guys need to see other sinners that need Christ because that brings glory to Christ rather than bringing glory to myself or bringing glory to you. But here's the beauty. When God holds your identity and He calls you a son or a daughter, then if the whole world rejects you and the one God receives you, then aren't you able to lay down before man and say, I can be humbled before man because the Lord lifts me up by His grace and gives me my identity. Because we all walk around and try to protect and live fake lives. Can't let church people especially see my brokenness. How foolish. That's Saul-like. Let's not be afraid to be broken and let Christ get glory in our life. Before we get too hard on Saul, I just want to remind you what is recorded in John chapter 12. I, I see way more Saul. <laughs> you know, Saul followed the Lord's command 95%, right? And then screwed up a little bit. I don't sit here and see myself not being ever like Saul. And in John 12, we get this scary statement in verse 42 where it says, Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in Him, believed in Jesus. They saw His signs. They heard His teachings. Many of the authorities believed in Him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For 
they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There was people in Jesus' day that believed He was the Son of God. They believed He was the Savior of the world. But they were not saved because they ultimately loved the glory of man more than the glory of God. That's a warning to anyone that has the right profession but is unwilling to truly repent from the heart and to be broken so that they may be lifted up and raised in Christ. Fourthly, like the firmness and feeling of our God. So when I say like here, I'm kind of saying like Facebook. I don't, I don't have Facebook, but I know there's, you can like something, I think anyway. Am I right? <laughs> well, I'm saying rather than be embarrassed by chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, like it. Like the fact that in this chapter it says that God repented of, of making or regretted making Saul king. And in the very same chapter, it says God doesn't change His mind. Well, how can we resolve this? Well, my, my answer to you first is good luck. I know it's true. But I do know this. You don't want a God that's sovereign who is playing a game like a board game where He's just, well, Saul's my king. He's not, he's not going to follow me. And I know it's going to lead into David. And it's going to turn into Christ. And I'm just playing this game. No. When Saul doesn't believe, the Lord feels sorrow. And he feels regret and a brokenness in his heart over man's sin, just as Samuel does. And he doesn't change his mind. That's the most beautiful God anyone could have ever have. A God that's totally in control, totally sovereign, and is broken with the sinfulness of man and the pain and of mankind. How do those go together? It's a paradox that's hard to understand, but God's plan is never flawed. I mean, I'll show you the two verses that just clear as a bell. Say it. Verse 29, and also the glory of Israel, the glory of Israel is God, will not lie or have regret, for He is not a man that He should have regret. Numbers 23.19 says this, God is not a man that He should lie or a son of man that He should change His mind. He has said and He'll do it or He has spoken or, or has He spoken and will He not fulfill it? In that sense, God has no regrets. But in the fact when people don't trust in Him, it hurts the heart of God. That's the God our Bible gives us. Love this God who destroys our enemies at all costs and saves His people. Love this God who mourns 
over the king he knows is going to fall and is even in his perfect plan, but is more broken than you and I could ever be over sin. This is a God worthy to be worshipped. Not a God to hide from. Not a God to choose sides on. Fifth, look at the sad hopelessness, hopeless example of life without God's Word. It's the saddest picture as Samuel goes off one way and Saul goes the other way. Two friends that have been together for years and years and have seen the Lord do many mighty things. God has told Samuel, I'm picking someone else. Samuel weeps all night long. Is angry. He's probably he's trying to figure out the paradox you and I are trying to figure out. You told me to make him king. You told me he was the one. Now you want me to go somewhere else? Now you want me to go anoint another king? But he knows he has to leave because the Lord has said it, and the Lord has said, I'm giving this kingship to your neighbor. And Samuel, when he grabs that sword, he retains the glory of God as he hacks Agag up and finishes the promise of God given in Exodus and Deuteronomy. And he shows us as an example of following God's Word. He did what King Saul was unwilling to do. To finish, I just want us to consider look at verses 18. I don't know if this struck me just because I'm going on a mission trip. But in verse 18, he says, and the Lord sent you on mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amicalites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Well, we're not sent on that mission today. But Jesus Christ could say, or someone, a prophet could come to us and say, has the Lord not sent you on mission to go into all nations and make disciples? But look, look at what Saul did. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? Jesus told us to give our lives for the sake of the Gospel. To spread the good news to the nations for His name's sake. And could they not, could God or someone not challenge us and say, why are you pouncing on the spoil? Why are you jumping on these riches when I've given you a mission to go on, to be faithful to, to be faithful to my word? And we might say, as Saul says in 20, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on mission. 
on which you sent me. I've gone to church. I've done this. I've done that. I've done all these things we could potentially point to. And so I just want it to be said of myself and of this church that we are people who love God's Word no matter what it says, no matter whether it makes us controversial, popular, or unpopular, even though it makes us not know how to, you know, well, your Bible has contradictions. Well, you can call it a contradiction, but I call it a God that's worthy to be praised that I can't wrap my mind around, but I do know there's hopelessness if I leave the God of the Word. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ and you're wondering what all this is about, here's the good news. The good news comes after the bad news. The bad news is we're all like Saul. We've all transgressed the law. We've all disobeyed His Word. But God sent His only Son, a perfect Son, who's never disobeyed the Word of God. Always only did what the Lord commanded Him to do. And this Son went on the toughest mission there could ever be. He went to a cross where He bore my sin and your sin and the sins of everyone who will trust in Him. He went on that cross and He took physical nails in His hands and His feet, but that wasn't nearly as bad as taking our sin and having the wrath of God come upon Him. That's the only way you and I can be settled with an unsettling holy God when Jesus Christ stands in our place, settles the account so that this God, who yes, is worthy to tremble before, is your Father and you can confidently know that you're going to live with Him forever and that He is for you in Christ. It's my prayer that you cling to Christ as your only hope. Or else we don't have any more hope than the Amicalites. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your glory that is on display in this chapter. Lord, there's something to learn about how bad You hate sin when it, the punishment for it seems so extreme. Lord, we can't imagine eternal punishment in hell forever. But You are so glorious and mighty that one sin against the eternal God deserves that. And so, Lord, we need the eternal God-man in our place. Thank You for Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.